Hello, and welcome to This Week in the Canadian Revolution, a podcast by Fightback, the Marxist voice of labor and youth. We live in a revolutionary epoch. The crisis of the capitalist system is creating political polarization and instability in every single country, as millions of people look for a way out. The product of this is unprecedented social upheaval and yes, revolution. Now we firmly believe that the crisis of capitalism is creating the conditions for socialist revolution. Yes, even in Canada. The point of this podcast is to provide a Marxist analysis of what Trotsky described as the molecular process of socialist revolution. This week in the Canadian Revolution, we are going to discuss the Ontario Education Workers' Strike and how to win. So if you haven't been following this, there is a conflict between the Conservative government of Ontario, and Doug Ford, the Premier, and the Education Workers' Union representing 55,000 workers. And they are at loggerheads. We'll get into the issues in a minute. Uh, but what is the most significant thing about this is that before a strike has even been called, a strike deadline's on Friday, the government has tabled back-to-work legislation. They tabled it, yes, uh, they tabled it on uh, Monday um, to take away the right to strike of these 55,000 generally pretty poor workers. They make, on average, $39,000 a year, which for a unionized worker, I think it's on the low end. It's on the very low end of that. Um, significantly, the government has also used the notwithstanding clause to strip the workers of their constitutional right to collective bargaining and ram a poverty agreement down their throats. So this has sent shockwaves across the entire labor movement, not just in Ontario, but in Canada as a whole. And all eyes are on this because it will set a precedent for future labor struggles. This isn't the first time we've seen back-to-work legislation, but you don't often see the notwithstanding clause be used to strip workers of their constitutional rights. So this is an anti-democratic, draconian legislation. So to get to the bottom of the issues uh, involved in this conflict, in this strike, I have with me today a rank-and-file education worker, uh, a custodian with QP 4400, Hermes Azam. And Hermes is going to help us, uh, basically help us uh, understand what's going on and, more importantly, what we can do to defeat this legislation to, and to defeat this government on this issue. Uh, anyway, welcome, Hermes. Thanks, Joe. Happy to be on my favorite podcast. <laughs> uh, how are you doing? How's, how, how are you and everybody in uh, 4400 doing right now? Yeah, you know, it's... Uh, stressful kind of anxiety inducing situation that we found ourselves in over the last you know 48 hours a lot has happened we're always trying to keep up to date with the latest information you know in a situation like this things move at lightning speed and you know but generally speaking i think you just look at the strike vote that we had last month 96.5 percent in favor there is a will to fight there is an energy there is this energy that we feel in the union meetings at the mass meetings, at the rally just that was held last night. And so we're ready to take this to the end. Excellent. Well, before we get into that, um, which is great to hear that the mood is, is militant and people want to fight this, I think we need to describe, uh, for those who have maybe not been following this so closely, how do we get here? What are the specific issues um, that are on the table that the union and the government are in conflict over. Um, so yeah, you want to just give uh, listeners uh, uh, the lowdown of what that, what the, what the main issues are. Yeah, absolutely. So this is not limited to QP workers, but inflation has been affecting Canadians across the nation. In fact, people across the world. We've seen this kind of cost of living crisis take grip over the entire world economy and Canada is no exception. At the start of this school year in September, inflation was at 8.1%. And 
uh, that is obviously a, a real wage cut. And that comes on top of 10 years of wage restraint laws by liberal and conservative governments. So Bill 115 under Kathleen Wynne in Ontario flows the wages of public sector workers. And then Bill 124 under Doug Ford, um, that was in, 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 enacted in 2019, also was a wage you know, restraint law that limited public sector wages to a 1% increase annually. So over the last 10 years, acute workers have experienced about 11% in pay cuts, and that was before the 8% inflation this year. And so that is a massive cut uh, to the standard of living. And so that obviously is one of the major issues of this, um, you know, of this strike. And it's not just a question of wages. Um, the government, Ford government, also wants to implement cuts to sick days. Um, after global pandemic, I think that's honestly quite scandalous. Um, and the, also there's a, a massive crisis of understaffing and overwork. So classrooms are often 30, 40 children. So it's teachers that are also being overworked, but also the staff, uh, support staff, people, QP uh, workers, right? People like myself, I'm a caretaker. And over the last two years, we've been we've been made to do so much more work than you know our standard duties: enhanced cleaning, disinfecting all surfaces, tables, chairs, etc. Um, to you know make sure that transmissions are as low well as possible in the classroom. Moreover, yeah, every worker, every worker in the public school system has had to take on a lot of work, and um, all, all while we're short-staffed almost regularly, it's a weekly or daily. There. In fact, just a few weeks ago, I was uh, placed in a building to clean the entire building by myself. That's actually common, but this building was massive, three floors, and you can't realistically get the work done for quality. But this is the state of public education in Ontario today, and the government is looking for further cuts. And we can't accept that. And it's not just for our like, standards, but it's for the education of students as well, obviously. And so when, you know, let Jane Ford talk about the students and the parents, we also have to point out they're very hypocritical because they're trying to destroy public education system. Okay, well, while the government and the, the union seem to be quite far apart on this, and this is a serious issue. This is a near issue of absolute impoverishment. That's what we're talking about. It was mentioned, I was at the rally yesterday, it was mentioned uh, by a few people that 50% of uh, education workers have a second time or a second job that they need to work an, a second job to get by. This is capitalism in crisis. This is what it is meaning for many people. It's not enough to work eight hours a day. It's not enough to work 40 hours a week. You're going to have to take on an extra job. So really, this is a question of absolute impoverishment. Even the Ford government uh, said that you needed to make more than $50,000 to, to live a healthy life, or I can't remember the way they worded it. And at the same time, they're going down saying, oh, you, so they know that they're impoverishing people. I think it's somewhat intentional. Um, but yeah, maybe we can get into like, yeah, what's the argument of the government? Like, why are they doing this? And uh, you, you kind of, uh, you mentioned it a little bit there. What, what, what is Liche saying? Liche saying um, how are they justifying this, you know? <laughs> Yeah, that's actually an important question to get to the bottom of because you see this in the right wing media and anti union propaganda that's been circulating on the internet, on the radios, etc. So, Lecce's main argument, Ford's main argument, is kids need to catch up, right? They've, they've fallen behind over the course of the pandemic, and we don't want any further disruptions to their education. And that sounds like a perfectly reasonable argument. But then you look at who's making it, right? You look at the people um, who've been, who were in charge during the pandemic, completely mishandled the, you know, the turn to the in-person learning. That stuffed these classrooms with, you know, 30, 40 children with no investment into ventilation, new HVAC systems, and, and just you know, the, the appalling behavior of the government throughout the pandemic. Um, 
and now obviously they have this concern for the students and the parents and, and, and them catching up. And so I think the most important point to make here is that you can't split the workers who essentially are the backbone of the public education system um, as having different interests from the parents and the students. In fact, it's precisely these workers that go in on a daily basis to make sure the system functions uh, without whom you know, nothing would really work in these buildings. And for that same reason, the TDSB was forced to announce that they're going to close down all schools on Friday because they, it's clear admission that you can't keep schools running without these workers. They are crucial. And so to try to uh, you know, create the sort of division between parents, students, and, and workers is quite scandalous. We can't fall for it. These workers are, um, uh, you know, have the same interests as parents. Parents are going through inflation. Parents want their kids to you know, study and learn and spend eight hours a day in a healthy, clean, safe environment. And we are crucial to make that happen. So our interests are the same. And uh, yeah, again, we shouldn't fall for Lecce's lies. Moreover, this is the same government that is planning to cut $12.3 billion out of the public education system over the course of the next 10 years. That is a massive uh, gutting of education that is meant to cripple um, public education. And obviously, whenever they cut public services, that is a boom for privatization creeping. So this government is an enemy of the working class, enemy of all workers in Ontario. And so we should be very critical of any remarks that they make. Yes, I think it's very important. This happens almost every time there's a strike that the, the government, the whatever the government is really uh, under capitalism, they, they start basically demonizing the workers and trying to pit them against other sections of society to justify um, uh, impoverishing them in this instance. Um, but it could be different depending on the conflict. Um, yeah, so they'll say, yeah, which, you know, I think you have outlined it well there. They don't give a crap about school. They don't care about the kids. They don't. It's total hypocrisy. And the onus of any disruption, any strike. Look, a lot of education workers have kids in schools, too. You think they don't care about this? Uh, and the onus for any disruption, any strike that sees kids not in school, everybody wants the kids to be in school. The workers want the kids to be in school. The teachers want the kids to be in school. Education workers want the kids to be in school. The onus for that, that is on the government. If they want the kids in school, then pay the workers well and fund the schools. That is a simple solution to this. But they're trying to put the onus on these poor workers that have been getting screwed, as you've, as you've described, for decades. <clears throat> and the line has to be drawn in the sand at some point. And I believe the line, the line is being drawn in the sand now. The government is actually the one that's drawn it. <laughs> uh, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But union leaders um, seem to be drawing the line in the sand too. Um, uh, on that point, um, I already talked about at the beginning of this podcast, <clears throat> what the, 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 the legislation they tabled on Monday, which isn't... Uh, so they're taking away the right to strike, right? I mean, it's significant in the sense in the way in which they did it. Normally, governments don't put that legislation prior to strike action. So they're, they're preempting the strike by taking away the right to strike. That's significant, although back-to-work legislation in Canada is not significant in and of itself anymore. We've written a lot about this. Uh, I believe we had we talked about this in podcast earlier this year as well. Uh, I could list dozens and dozens of times that back-to-work legislation has been used over the past 10, 15 years. It is a common occurrence. Uh, it's been used against postal posties a couple of times. It's been used against uh, many different sectors, nurses in different provinces, uh, teachers in different provinces, uh, even teaching assistance it was used against once in British Columbia. Um, so yeah, this has become a common occurrence, which basically means that uh, that social contract that was established in Canada many decades ago between the bosses and the workers, leaders, that was, we'll give you a collective bargaining system. 
and union recognition and rights and the right to bargain and the right to strike and the right to uh, fight for better living conditions um, uh, as long as you maintain within this system, right? And you don't go too far. That is out the window. If every time a strike happens, they use back-to-work legislation, the right to strike essentially doesn't exist. And why would any capitalist or any government bargain in good faith if they have that law at the ready and it happens more often than not? They would not. And this government uh, at the rally yesterday, some of the, bargain the people from the bargaining team, they're saying they were laughing at us. They're reading a newspaper when we're trying to bargain. Because Lecce, who's a he went to private school. He doesn't care about the public school system. <laughs> He's a little privileged private school uh, guy, you know. He doesn't care about this. He was making fun of them because they don't actually care, and they know that they're just gonna—they're just putting this law in place anyway. So quite often in the labor movement, people they complain about either the government or the employer not bargaining in good faith. Well, why would they bargain in good faith? The class struggle is not about good faith bargaining. It's about antagonistic class classes basically going to war fighting it out and that looks like that what's going to happen is that that veil is being stripped the veil of niceness and bargaining and reaching an agreement is taken off and uh looks like we're gonna have a good old class struggle class class uh, class war as it were um hopefully and i think the worker in this instance the workers outnumber the government and the workers, as you've outlined here, are essential for the school system. And with the solidarity of the whole labor movement, the workers can be successful. Anyway, we'll get get to that in a minute. Um, but yeah, I wanted to maybe touch on the significance of the notwithstanding clause. Which So the back-to-work legislation, as I've outlined, is not actually something new. seen it before. But this notwithstanding clause, um, this is significant. Um, do you want to maybe come in on this? What's the significance of this? And uh, I don't know, what's the what's the impact that that has had in the labor movement, in the union? Yeah, of course. So Ford invoked this notwithstanding clause. And I think this is the second or third time it's been done. The first notable instance with Doug Ford was during, I think it was 2018 city council elections where Ford essentially imposed a 50% cut in city councillors in Toronto and that was a huge scandal at the time but I think this case of the notwithstanding clause against CUPE against the right to strike and collectively bargain I think there's a far more serious uh, use of this law and but yeah essentially what it does is it tosses the charter to the side and imposes the will of the government unilaterally. So what the government wants to do is put an end to the negotiations and simply impose a poverty contract on us, on keeping workers who, again, are the poorest paid workers in the province. So what the union was demanding was about a three, uh, 3.25 an hour increase, uh, which roughly uh, comes to about 11 said, which is again a catch-up clause really uh, catches us up from the wage restraint laws of Wynn and Ford over the last 10 years and uh, so it was a very modest demand to begin with so that was the demand of the union as well as maintaining all the benefits and sick days but the Ford government is trying to impose on us undemocratically um, with this anti-union legislation he wants to impose on us a cut not only to our wages, but also to our sick days. Uh, they, they, they offered between 1.5 and 2.5% in the final ultimatum that they made to the union. Against inflation, that is about a 6% real wage cut. And over the course of four years, that's about a quarter of our paycheck. So you see what used to be good union jobs have been eroded away over the course of the last few decades. But now they want to transform us into no more than simple minimum wage positions. And so this, this use of the notwithstanding clause, I think, is an extreme measure. It's an attempt to break the back of the unions. And it sets a precedent, not just for QP or education workers, but all workers in this country, in this province. And so I think 
we need to respond proportionally. This is a massive attack. I think the gravest attack on trade union rights in a generation since Mike Harris. Um, and labor movement needs to mobilize in proportion for a mass resistance to this uh, blatant attack on, on trade unions. Cool. Well, thank you, Hermes, for, for uh, describing that. Yeah, clearly this, this law needs to be fought. And uh, we'll get into that, how to do that in a minute and what the response from the union leaders has been so far. But I just wanted to quickly take a commercial break. Um, so yeah, you're listening to This Week in the Canadian Revolution, a podca podcast put on by Fight Back, the Marxist voice of labor and youth. And uh, yeah, we produce uh, Marxist analysis of the Canadian class struggle of events in Canada. And you can find that on our website at marxist.ca, right in French at marxist.qc.ca. Uh, we also produce... Uh, Pa uh, journals, papers. Uh, our English language paper is called Fight Back, um, and it just comes out every two weeks. Um, the latest issue is actually focusing on the question of the education worker strike in Ontario, and I encourage you to go to our website and, uh, and get yourself a subscription uh, to Fight Back magazine. Uh, and yeah, you can get the paper delivered to your door once every two weeks. Um, anyway, we have... Uh, we're constantly trying to build up our subscriber base to our our paper, which is a revolutionary workers press to provide a uh, point of view that is not the point of view of the capitalists through their media, but is our, our point of view, working class uh, opinions um, of what is happening in, uh, in our defense, in the defense of the working class. And we have had uh, many new subscribers over the past week, where every week we're getting a, a new list of subscribers. We have 10 new subscribers since last Thursday, actually, to Fightback Magazine. We have Scott, Goche, Henrik, Adam, Peng, Maxinan, Holly, Andrea, Lori, and Andrea. Thank you, comrades, friends, supporters, for subscribing to Fightback Magazine. And uh, to our French language publication, La Riposte Socialiste, which comes out once a month. Uh, we have two new subscribers, Renaud and Michel. So uh, thank you uh, for subscribing to La Riposte Socialiste. And I encourage everyone here to subscribe to both our publications, Fight Back and La Riposte Socialiste. And you can find that on our websites, marxist.ca and marxist.qc.ca. Um, so yes, moving back into it here with Hermes Azam from uh, QP4400, Education Workers Strike in Ontario. Um, yeah, so with this in mind, this law needs to be fought. This is a draconian law aimed at breaking the union and tearing up collective bargaining rights uh, and sets a dangerous precedent for the entire labor movement. So with that in mind, what is to be done? What's the response from union leaders? Um, yeah, so I don't know, Hermes, you want to uh, let us know? Yeah, what's, what's been the response from major union leaders in Ontario? So our, our union, QB, and its central bargaining agent, OSBC, we've been getting a flood of support from different unions, uh, OSSTF, the teachers, uh, secondary school teachers put out statements. And we've been getting a lot of support, uh, a lot of solidarity. <clears throat> And that, I think, needs to translate into active solidarity, you know. Um, and we'll get into how the labor movement can concretely help um, us in our struggle. But in terms of our own union leaders, I think there's been, there's been a huge development compared to how back the work legislation was treated in the, in the past by union leaderships. You think of, you know, QP3903, Dublin, and, and the dock workers in Quebec, and so on. Um, the, the union leaders at, at the moment in QP, Fred Haar, who's a QP Ontario president, and uh, Laura Walton, who's the president of the OSBCU, School Board Council of Unions, they've made some really uh, bold statements, and I'll just read out a few. So there was a mass meeting on Sunday, so the day before back to work legislation was tabled. And and then Fred, Fred Hahn made this following statement Friday, November 4th, which would be our legal strike day, 
Regardless of what this legislation says, our members will be engaging in province-wide protest. That means no QP education workers will be at work. And Fred actually added, and he paraphrased the quote by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., that famous quote where he said that, you know, we have a duty to disobey unjust laws. And so uh, in terms of Laura, she also added, you know, fight in Ontario like we've never fought before. If we don't fight now, when will we fight? And she also advised workers to prepare to walk off site on November 5th as a political protest, legislation or not. Now, I think um, this, is, this is a huge step forward. And you know, this bold response by our union leaders to, I, again, as what I mentioned, is probably the greatest threat to the labor movement in a generation is in and of itself, I think, very commendable. And, and again, on, on the question of how the, uh, the rest of the labor movement has responded, just last night, there was a, uh, I think, very successful rally outside of the Ministry of Labor in Toronto. And we had a showing from several unions. We had uh, teachers unions, other private sector unions, uh, the nurses were out, et cetera all in solidarity to, you know, take a bold stance against this. And there was many speeches as well made at that rally on defiance, on the uh, need for the labor movement to put its foot down and you know, have a firm response against these attacks. Um, and I think so far, so good. And on Friday, all these unions have committed to turning up to our picket lines in solidarity as well. And I think that's all. Fantastic. But I, I do think this strike to defeat this law and defeat you know, the precedent that it will set for the rest of the movement, I think this strike needs to spread not just solidarity visits to the picket lines, but I'm thinking solidarity strikes uh, and walkouts in support of keeping to paralyze this province and make Doug Ford listen, because he's not going to listen, I think, to just a one day strike. This movement needs to spread beyond QB because it, it has an impact on every single union and worker across the province. Okay, so yeah, there's going to be this. I haven't actually heard leaders speak like this. I know that they probably did in the past, but um, I've been politically active for a couple of decades almost, and I have never heard union leaders say anything like that, that they were saying yesterday at the rally or that what you're quoting there normally what happens when backward legislation is put forward the union leaders say well we can't break the law right <laughs> and we got to go back to work we might challenge it in the courts later now one of the effects of this notwithstanding clause is they can't challenge it in the courts as far as i'm aware <laughs> and it's just going to be like that for five years so they know that they're taking away their democratic rights and they're using the notwithstanding clause to basically get around that. Well, that's the whole point. It's notwithstanding the constitution. <laughs> um, so yeah, the fact that the leaders, Fred Hahn and Laura Walton and some others are saying some things that they're going to basically be out on Friday, regardless of what the legislation says, that is a fantastic development. Um, but I guess that leads to the question of, well, what is the law then? What's the consequences of disobeying this law? So, yeah, you want to you wanna speak to that? Yeah, actually, the, the, I guess if you're to just look at it <laughs> at face value, the government is proposing quite astronomical fines. And so I think the figure is 500,000 a day per union and $4,000 a day per individual worker. So if you do the math, that amounts to about $220 million for the Friday strike alone. Um, and so, you know, I think if you were to look at it again as face value, it'd be a huge, you know, like, it'd be a you know, massive sort of, uh, you know, fear kind of tactic from the, from the government and which would discourage a lot of workers. But ultimately, what is a, a law? What is a fine? What is an injunction? They're pieces of paper. 
through pieces of paper and what gives them legitimacy is a class balance of forces on the ground, to be quite honest. It, it, it all comes down to whether or not you're willing to fight till the end, if you're willing to go take the struggle right to the end. There's a few examples I can think of where, um, you know, like, I guess on, on the concrete issue of defiance, the example of uh, the BC TAs that Joel referred to earlier on that were legislated back to work 20 years ago by a liberal Gordon Campbell government. And the, the small TA local, QP2278, defied. And that actually led to a mass campaign of defiance. So that's something we also need to kind of set our sights for here in Ontario today. But after the TAs in BC, it spread to the nurses and then the dock workers and the teachers. And uh, ultimately, the legislation was defeated and, and then the union gained a victory. And what happened to the fines and the injunctions, right? None of them were ever enforced. Not a penny was collected in fines, not a reprisal was enforced. And so, well, you know, what I'd say to folks who are, you know, understandably worried about these astronomers, you know, astronomical fines that the government is um, threatening the union with, I would say that the only way to make sure none of these are collected is to wage a powerful strike, strong picket lines, and win. If you win, you never have to pay. So that's just, I guess, one, one side of the thing. Yeah, so this is pretty much a game of chicken here. Um, and the government is waiting for the unions to flinch. And so they're going to, they're throwing everything at them. Um, it's basically a bully acting real strong. And sometimes someone needs to smack the bully down. And I'd say in this, in this contest, the workers are actually much stronger if they actually use their strength. So the fines, as you've laid out, I wanted to point out one thing about the fines, which is really hypocritical. So were any of the private long-term care owners fined for the disaster that occurred in their long-term care homes where thousands of people died? No. What about anyone, any corporation that's caught? What happened to SNC-Lavalin? They had this big corruption scandal. What happened to We Charity? The Trudeau government was caught giving their friends deals. Are they fined $220 million? You're talking $220 million to fine some of the poorest unionized workers for one day? Jesus Christ, for fighting for better living conditions. This shows the capitalist state in all its glory. It lets corporate crooks off the hook. It, uh... Uh, yeah, it actually doesn't even let them off the hook. It gives them hundreds of millions of dollars in bailouts. That's what occurred during the pandemic. Billions of dollars. Uh, really, so that's, that's what we're looking at here. This fines, if paid, would bankrupt the union, ultimately. But, I think as you've stated correctly, yeah, what is a fine, really? Can they really fine 55,000 workers all at once like that? Not if you don't let them. Uh, there's one experience that I had of this during when I used to live in Quebec during the 2012 Quebec student strike. We had students go on strike for several months and shut down the post-secondary post education system. The government was throwing everything at them, injunctions, mass arrests, whatnot. Eventually in May, they put forward Bill 78, which was one of the most draconian legislations that I've ever seen, banning demonstrations of over 50 um, basically attacking uh, union, student union rights, workers' unions, um, uh, punishing with massive fines anyone who disobeyed the law. This law was actually highlighted by the United Nations as being an infringement on democracy. They were like, there's bad, you know, we got to keep an eye on Egypt and Syria and Quebec, you know. <laughs> um, so what happened? They put this law forward. The students in mainly led by uh, the student union ASSE, called a press conference. I remember it. It was amazing. They said, we will not obey this law. And they launched a ca mass campaign of civil disobedience. They had a website that was basically, I disobey, and people post pictures of them disobeying the law. 
there were mass protests, casserole demos, people banging pots and pans in every demonstration. That, that law actually, with bold leadership that the student leaders gave, um, Gabrielle Nadeau-Dubois and Jane Reynolds, that law became inapplicable. There were more protests after the law than there were before the law. So this law, if defied, and a mass movement is launched against it, will be inapplicable and nobody will pay those fines. Actually, in 2012, nobody paid those fines. They were all thrown out later. Um, so I think that's very important that if you're going to step over the line, you got to go the whole way. You can't just strike for one day and then pay these fines and cripple the union. So yeah, I think like you said, yeah, there needs to be an all-out strike um, until this law, the fines, the punishment, the, the, the notwithstanding clause and all this stuff is off the table. Um, but yeah, maybe that gets into a bit on what is to be done here. Uh, you have a couple comments though, Hermes? Yeah, just on that last point you made with like the notwithstanding clause too. I think it's important to point out the hypocrisy of like legality. Our strike is illegal because of some, because of this back to work legislation and notwithstanding clause. But the way they, the government, you know, is imposing this, they've suspended the law, they've suspended the charter to ram this through. So in fact, historically, Back-to-work legislation has been ruled unconstitutional on several occasions by the courts after the fact. And so it is an illegal maneuver. And so they're using illegal tactics to make us illegal. And so they're not afraid of legality and neither should we. We'll settle this thing on the picket lines. That's where our strength comes from, not in the courts or anywhere else. And so I think that's just one additional point I wanted to get in there. Yeah, exactly. Legal or illegal is beside the point. They don't give it. They don't even care about the law, which is why they're using notwithstanding clause. Um, very important point there. We shouldn't give them that <clears throat> that stick about legality or not. Um, so yeah, I guess we get into like what is to be done. We've talked about it a bit already. Uh, Hermes here is a member of, like I said, QP forty four hundred, and Hermes and many other uh, comrades in the union in for QP forty four hundred organize a rank and file committee of militant trade union workers, of socialists, fighting for a militant trade union policy. Um, so that's fantastic. And I want to know, maybe Hermes can explain a bit about the rank and file committee, what it is, <clears throat> and and what, what you guys have been arguing for. Yeah, absolutely. So I've had the honor and pleasure, really, of organizing on the, at the grassroots level within my local and QP4400 is, I think, one of the biggest QP locals in Toronto. So it's an important union with about close to 20,000 workers, actually. And this union can play a huge role in transforming the labor movements in the certain heart of Ontario, right, in Toronto, and in an important sector of education. And within our local, we, um, Take an initiative, we call it the rank and file group. And all it is is a group of self-organized working class or union members in our local that get together on a monthly basis and discuss labor history, discuss the tactics of the past, how we won the rights that we have today, the right to strike, unionization, maternity leave, and so on, and to learn the best tactics and bring them over to today to revive the militant traditions of our labor ancestors um, to strengthen the labor movement today and here and now. And aside from education, which is big emphasis of the rank and file group, we also um, engage within our union democracy. So we attend our union meetings and we try to commit the local to, um, to yeah, precisely those tactics and methods that we think are best suited for us to win what we deserve and to strengthen the union. So one example of that is that the lead up to the negotiations, we passed a really popular motion on COLA, cost of living adjustment, it got tons of support, 97% voted in favor of it. Uh, unfortunately, it wasn't adopted by the OSBCU for central bargaining, but that's a different story. Um, but you see the role a rank and file group can play because we repopularized the slogan COLA, which was popular in the 70s and 80s, because of our studies, because we focus on best tactics in the past, and we were able to bring that into the debate, into the discussion. And we've done uh, other, we've passed other motions like, you know, 
picket lines, we need to do it on cross. We need to respect teachers picket lines so that when we are on strike, they respect ours. And just, you know, hammering home the principles of labor movement. So that's sort of the work we've been doing. And in the lead up to the strike, we've actually also written quite a few articles from the perspective of people who work on the front line, on the floor, day in and day out. I think those are invaluable for the rest of the labor movement um, to gain that perspective from working class militants in the field. So yeah, that's sort of what the rank and file does. And we, we've gotten some, you know, critiques, I, I guess, of, you know, you know, why split yourself off from the rest of the union? And, and I think just to comment briefly on that, we are part of the union. We want what is in the best interest of the union. As union militants, we want to strengthen our union so it's a fighting organization that can win us the demands that we deserve. But now if you look at <laughs> You know, if you talk about organization, you see that the bosses are organized and they're you know, various um, commissions and committees. You have the government, the government is very organized. And within the labor movement, we have to be very clear on this. There is a right wing that wants to compromise with the bosses, the business unionists, if you will. And they're very well organized. So I think it's equally fair if the left wing within the labor movement is also organized around clear ideas. And that's precisely what name of our rank and file group is and it's spreading we were reached out to by a few activists in qp79 very recently and they told us how they were impressed by our work how they're dealing with similar challenges within their union um lack of member engagement a lack of um, you know militancy and that they are setting up their own rank and file group qp79 which is the biggest qp local in toronto um city workers I think that's a fantastic development. So you see, we're re reviving these traditions in Canada, and I'm super happy to you know, be playing a role in this. Well, that's excellent. I think you know, Marx famously said that the working class, nobody's going to emancipate the working class. The working class needs to emancipate itself. So workers need to self-organize, and I think we're setting an example here. And this is actually how you're also going to transform our unions and revive some of those militant traditions so we can defeat reactionary governments like the Doug Ford government and defeat uh, back-to-work legislation and defeat uh, attacks on collective bargaining um, and defeat attacks on our living conditions is from the rank and file. Um, so I think that that is very important. And I just appeal to anyone here, if you're a 4400 member, if you're an education worker and you don't know what to do, and you want to fight, and you want to fight against, fight back against the government. Uh, get in touch with us. Uh, we, uh, we can put you in touch with with Hermes and the other comrades in the union there. Um, yeah, so I think that's really fundamental. And if you're not a QP forty four hundred member, you're not an education worker, but you're in a different union and you want to form a rank and file committee. <laughs> same thing, man. Get in touch with us. We'll help you out um, because I think we need this across the whole labor movement ultimately. Uh, to fight for rank and file control over our unions, um, for example, like maybe the the union leaders back down. There's always the possibility people are scared, right? Maybe they back down, but the only way to stop that is through rank and file control, right? And the way to do that is to actually self-organize. So, um, I think really that fundamental importance of this cannot be emphasized enough. Um, and yeah, about the articles that Hermes and other comrades have been writing, you can find those on, we publish all of them on marxist.ca, um, and most of them would be in our magazine as well. So again, it's a good opportunity to check out our website. Uh, you can search for QP4400 for Toronto Education Workers, uh, even probably Hermes' name, he's got his name on a bunch of those. <laughs> you can... Uh, read our not only our analysis now which we just published an article yesterday about this which you should read but also um all of our analysis of this leading up to this very important um that you do that so um yeah i guess we're near the end of the podcast here and the big question is uh we're still some stuff to discuss like what what is to be done right like i, I wanted to address the question is like can education workers win this alone Sometimes I think in the union movement, there's this mistaken idea, which is really, um, 
I don't know how to describe it, sort of corporatist. It's that each union is on its own, doing its own thing for their members, right? Um, but yeah, really, uh, what is the perspective for this move? What needs to happen to bring, to, to, to stop this law and to, and to defeat this government? You want to comment on that, Hermes? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a famous slogan in the labor movement that an injury to one is an injury to all. And similarly, a victory for one is also a victory for all. And we have to approach this struggle with that in mind, because while education workers, while QP at the moment is at the front and center of this struggle, and we're obviously gonna have to lead the way in this fight, it actually can't be fought alone. We can't fight against the entire government on our own and we need the solidarity and participation of the broader labor movement and there's a concrete example of how this can be done in 2018 um, actually it was activists with labor fight back and folks who um, set up the picket lines me do not cross campaign uh, who passed a motion at the toronto and york region labor council and the motion essentially read uh, quoted here, we called for a campaign of, and I quote, solidarity walkouts and mass political protests, which would be triggered in the event that any Toronto and York Region Labour Council affiliated local has its rights violated. And I think that is a fantastic piece of, uh, you know, writing that the union has committed to. And this needs to be replicated across the entire province what we need is other locals to join us on the picket lines in solidarity strikes and walkouts, join us in mass political demonstrations to show this government that, you know, don't use back to work legislation again, because it will spark a tremendous response from all of organized labor. Again, an injury to one is an injury to all. What happens with QP will set a precedent for the rest of the public sector. And a victory for us is all the more important for that reason. So those are some, some examples, you know, I think of the OFL, Ontario Federation of Labour needs to commit to a very similar um, motion. And teachers unions also have a big role to play because support staff with 55,000 in Ontario, with all of the education staff, the teachers included, that brings our strength up to 250,000. That is real bargaining power, that's real strength. So, Teachers unions have to play a big role in this struggle as well to ensure our victory because they're going to need bargaining. Uh, some are currently bargaining, like EPFO or SSTF, I think begins in spring. And everything that goes down today with QP will set that precedent for them as well. And just actually from today, there was um, an email that was sent to elementary teachers by EPFO. And I think here's an example of where weakness lies in this struggle and what we need to be able to correct. So in an email sent to teachers, elementary teachers, um, the union, EPFO, um, essentially advised them that they're not, that they essentially updated the workers, that we're not in a legal strike position. And so consequently, all workers in EPFO are legally obligated to attend regular work duties as employees of their school. So what this is essentially saying is that teachers in elementary schools will be crossing QP picket lines. That is a, um, you know, that, I think that is unacceptable. That is a huge, you know, slap in the face of education workers in QP that are going up against this draconian law, this you know, aggressive government. And while we need all the support we can get, to hear something like this from another union that so closely works with us on a day-to-day -day basis is a little disconcerting. And so in the following days, I think we really need to put the pressure on the rest of the labor movement, come to our aid, stand with us, respect our picket lines, and not only that, join them. Join them in solidarity strikes. That's the only way we can defeat, which again, and I'll repeat this for the third time, gravest threat to the labor movement in a generation. We need to treat it like that and mobilize for Fight. Yeah, so Marxists quite often talk about leadership. 
this is what we mean. Leadership is key. It's, it's in those key moments, the question of leadership is absolutely, it's fundamental. So this is not just a threat to education workers, as I hope we've made perfectly clear. This is a threat to the entire labor movement. The line has been drawn in the sand. Doug Ford has thrown the gauntlet down. We must pick it up. All unions must pick it up. It's not a normal humdrum, oh, we're not in a legal strike position. The law has been thrown out the window. That is what has happened. And this will be settled. I think Hermes said it right. It will be settled on the picket lines. So really, that is what is needed. The strike needs to spread. There needs to be continued mass campaign strikes, cross-picketing of other workplaces, uh, and solidarity strikes from all sorts of unions, the postal workers, the teachers. Um, uh, yeah, all sectors need to unite behind the education workers because this isn't about the education workers. This is about our democratic freedoms. It's about the right to collective bargain. It's about the right to strike, which is continually under attack. And this is just the next level attack on those rights and freedoms. And I think Laura Walton said it well the other day at the rally. If we don't fight now, when are we going to fight? We need to fight now. And so every single union must be on the side of the education workers. And we must work to spread the strike. Um, yeah. And so hope if you're listening to this, if you're active, if you're in a trade union, reach out to us. We can help. We can be in touch with you. Um, we will be mobilizing massively for Friday, which, as we've said, is very significant. If this is the unions defying the law, that's is this is a uh, a step forward in the way that the labor movement responds to back to work legislation. However, as I think I hope we have made perfectly clear here, this government is not going to back down after one day. You got to go all in. Uh, you got to go all in. Otherwise, they call your bluff. Um, for any any of you who play poker. When you're bluffing and the other side knows you don't have a good hand, game over. You need to be all in, and you need to, it needs to be a sign of strength that we build a mass strike movement of education workers, of the whole labor movement against this, ultimately, um, to bring down the law, to stop this law, um, which is really an illegal law, <laughs> an anti-constitutional, anti-democratic law, and it needs to be defeated in the here and now, on the picket lines, on the streets. And really, I think there's a hell of a lot of anger in the movement. I think there's polls that show the majority of people are on the side of the education workers. There's the majority, the polls show that the majority of society are angry at the governments. People are looking for a way to fight back, right? Um, and the labor movement needs to give that anger a uh, way of a channel and this what better channel than this this is the most clear-cut working-class issue I could possibly think of so really that's what needs to happen no back down um, the strike needs to go beyond one day and it needs to spread to the entire labor movement and no one should go back to work until the fines are off the table this anti-democratic law is off the table any youth of the notwithstanding clause is taken away um, and their poverty contract is withdrawn and they negotiate in good faith. That is what is needed. Um, and I think that, you know, some people might say, oh, that's not going to happen. The leaders won't do that. One, you don't know that. One, in these types of things, anything can happen. A lot of anger. Workers are mad. Workers want to fight. Hermes described the mood. The strike vote was very clear. 96% with 45,000 workers of the 55,000 voting? Like, holy hell. Um, that is a lot. That's a very big vote. People want to fight, and I think a lot can happen. And if you want to help us fight for this, join us. Join Fight Back. Join, if you're a QP 4400 member, join the rank and file committee uh, with Hermes and the other comrades there and fight for a militant class struggle. Uh, no giving in defending our democratic freedoms position, uh, which is what Fight Back is fighting for. So yeah, I encourage you to get in touch with us. Uh, and for everyone, a really all out on Friday um, for, the, uh, for the strike, really. This is, uh, is going to be a historic moment, an illegal strike.
um, and really a show of force, um, mass demonstrations, mass picketing, and we will be there, um, and I hope to see you out. Um, anyway, we're more or less at the end of this. Um, we live in exciting times. Um, we haven't been doing the podcast that regularly because there hasn't been not much going on in Canadian politics. Well, it's starting to change. The capitalist crisis is grinding workers down and producing struggles like this. So, um, yeah, we should all keep our eye on it. Keep, everyone listening should read our website, should listen to our podcast, should show up to the picket lines if you can. And really, that's what, uh, yeah, that's what we need to do. So, yeah, I don't know, Hermes, do you have any final words here for people before we end this? Yeah, perhaps just a small point. Uh, and on a positive note, just last week we heard that a education workers strike out in Winnipeg was after four weeks of striking successful in gaining the demands. And in fact, they were very similar to what we're asking for here in Ontario. They won $3 an hour ECs uh, out in Winnipeg, as well as block major cuts to sick days. Those are precisely the issues that we're fighting for in Ontario. But that took a four week strike. And we also have to keep in mind uh, a one day strike is not going to make this government back down. They've already, as you mentioned, thrown down the gauntlet. We gotta pick it up. We gotta prepare for an almighty struggle in Ontario, defend our workers, defend our right to strike, defend our unions. And it starts on Friday, but it needs to continue through one, you know, the next week, Monday onwards, and it's an all out strike until victory, until fines are dropped, until all workers are reinstated back in their position, and until we have the contract we deserve. I think it's possible. I think we have support. In fact, I think we have support enough to launch a struggle in Ontario that will be remembered for generations. That will be a turning point in Canadian labor history. And so we have the support, we have the mandate, and I think we simply need to get it done. So again, thanks for having me on this podcast, Joe. Well, I think that says it all. Thank you very much, Hermes. See everyone on the picket lines. Get ready for International Marxist Radio, the official podcast of the International Marxist Tendency. Marxist.com. A society which can live in harmony with nature develop the productive forces without destroying the environment. The institutions of international capital, the markets, for example, the IMF. Capital comes to the world dripping blood and dirt from its every port. Hi, I'm Joe Attard, an activist with the IMT, writer for Marxist.com, and the host of a brand new podcast series, International Marxist Radio IMR. We here at Marxist.com are so excited to bring you this new show, which will offer all the best Marxist news, theory, and analysis that you've come to expect from our articles in audio form. And why are we launching this series now? Simply put, 2022 was a watershed in the history of world politics. Capitalism is in its deepest ever crisis, and the global situation was turned upside down. You have the Ukraine war, the cost of living crisis, insurrectionary movements in one country after another, from Sri Lanka to Iran. The year ended with the congressional coup against Pedro Castillo and the mass protest movement in response by workers and peasants. Simply put, the class struggle is intensifying, the crisis is accelerating. This is a podcast for revolutionaries. We need to equip you with the analysis and ideas necessary to navigate this tumultuous new period and fight to change the world. And on top of that, we know there's a hunger for Marxist theory and education. Our philosophy is the only one capable of really making sense of what's going on in the world. And we're going to be bringing you all sorts of discussion on theoretical topics from economics to history to philosophy to science and more. We already have so many amazing episodes that we can't wait to share with you. Episode 1 is going to land in January 2023, so be sure to subscribe to the podcast at your preferred streaming platform. We're available on all the big ones. And in the meantime, help us spread the word. 
get on social media, share this ad, share our teaser with the hashtag IMR, and tell us what kinds of subjects you want us to cover. And above all, this podcast is the voice of the international Marxist tendency, a revolutionary Marxist organization fighting to transform society all over the world. So if you're inspired by the ideas you hear on this podcast, then get in touch via our website, marxist.com, find your local IMT section, and learn more about how you can fight to transform society, overthrow capitalism, and build socialism in our lifetimes. I'm Joe Attard, this is IMR, and we'll see you in 2023. been listening to This Week in the Canadian Revolution, where we analyze the events of the class struggle, the turbulence and polarization brought upon by the crisis of the capitalist system in order to prepare activists for the coming revolutionary events so that we can fight back and build socialism in our lifetime. You can find us at marxist.ca and we will be doing this podcast every week, so we hope that you tune in again.